0: This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the Nocturnal Reader's Box. If you love horror and sci-fi, or know someone who does, then listen up. As a Nocturnal Reader's Box subscriber, every month you get at least two novels – one new title and one previously released title. In each monthly box you also get a new bookmark and a custom art print created solely for those subscribed to the Nocturnal Reader's Box you'll always see seven or more items in the box every month. Subscribe for yourself or make it a gift for a weirdo friend. Subscribe today at TheNocturnalReadersBox.com. That's TheNocturnalReadersBox.com. Get 15% off your first six-month subscription by using the promo code WEIRD15. That's all one word, WEIRD15. Sign up at TheNocturnalReadersBox.com or click the link in the show notes. Welcome, Weirdos! This is a special Weekend Archive episode of Weird Darkness. Here you'll find stories of the paranormal, supernatural, mysterious, macabre, unsolved and unexplained. If you have a dark tale to tell, you can share it with me at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. And be sure to subscribe if you've not done so already so you don't miss future uploads. Now, bolt your doors, lock your windows, turn off your lights, and come with me into the archives of Weird Darkness. So you want to travel back in time and see the past and meet your ancestors. Are you really sure about that? Because if you do, then you will most likely kill your doppelganger. Many people are fascinated with time travel and more and more scientists seriously consider the idea that traveling to the past or future could be possible under certain circumstances. However, there are some problems to be solved before we can travel backwards in time to meet our ancestors. A new controversial theory put forward by physicist professor Robert Nemiroff suggests that time travel can result in killing your doppelganger. The act of time traveling would create several versions of you, some living in the present while others move to the past. Your doppelgangers will be destined to meet up, and when they do, they will ultimately destroy each other. It may sound like science fiction, but one theoretical physicist has worked out mathematical equations to show how this might work using our current understanding of science. I had heard many times that faster than light motion results in backwards time travel. Robert Nemiroff, a physicist at Michigan Technological University told DailyMail.com. Even though I am a professional astrophysicist, I didn't understand the details of how this might work, so a student and I tried to work out for ourselves a very simple example. The example involved a spaceship that would start on a launching pad on Earth, travel at five times the speed of light to a planet about ten light years away. It is well known, and not controversial, that you can time travel to the future by just traveling quickly in a spaceship and coming back," said Professor Nemirov. The closer one goes to the speed of light, and the longer the trip, the further into the future you can go. But what about the past? Can you get to the past simply by just traveling in a spaceship? The only way this could happen was to assume that the spaceship could travel faster than the speed of light and return. Although in retrospect the equations were simple, it took us quite some effort to figure out how this might work, said Professor Nemirov. Even so, the only solutions we could find involved these strange pairs of travelers popping into and out of existence. We speculated that one member of this pair must have a strange type of negative mass while the other has normal positive mass. Using Professor Nemirov's equations, it turned out that a pair of ghost ships, one with a negative mass and one with positive mass, would appear out of thin air. Because the light from the spaceship travels slower than the spaceship after it returns, Earthlings would see images of the spaceship on its way out and another on its way back. Eight years later, an image of the spaceship sitting on the launch pad will still be visible, as would two of the spaceships on its outbound and return flights. After about ten years, the phantom spaceship pairs would destroy each other and there would only be one spaceship sitting on the landing pad. The same thing would happen with any object traveling back in time. For example, if in Doctor Who two doctors were standing right next to each other we found that a third doctor must exist of negative mass hurtling away faster than light, explained Professor Nemirov. This third doctor is destined to meet up with one of the original doctors and together disappear. This superluminal doctor would also appear to be moving time backwards. The thought experiment creates more questions than it answers. For instance, what would the doppelgangers be made of? and which would be the real one. The physicist says he doesn't have the answers, but in any case, he doesn't think this would ever be a reality. Unfortunately, it does not seem possible for physical things to travel faster than light, and that is a crucial step, he said. We can make shadows and light spots from laser pointers appear to move that fast, but no one has ever been able to make something physical with mass move that fast. So, time travel to the past seems impossible, at least presently. There are no such things as monsters. That's what my mommy used to say. She would tuck me into bed, make sure that my favorite doll, Casey, was in my arms and tell me, there's nothing to be scared of. There are no monsters, no real monsters. She would whisper these words to me, mostly at night because that's when the monsters like to come out. At night when the walls would vibrate from machinery humming in the service tunnels and sub-basements below. I needed to hear those words when the wind would scream and howl from the unstable air currents and unpredictable weather patterns that came with an atmosphere being changed by a terraforming station. The turbines from dozens of filtration exchange towers took in the cold alien atmosphere and expelled hot oxygen and nitrogen-rich air. Just like the rhyme my daddy would sing with me, bad air goes in, good air comes out. I would need reminding one more time when the giant atmospheric processing station brought the rain by releasing electrical discharges into the clouds. That was when the monsters scared me the most. The lightning and thunder was the sound they made when they tried to get inside. The wind was the monster's voice, and the rain was its nails, clicking and tapping at the windows of my living quarters. My mommy would come and make it all better. And say there are no such thing as monsters. Monsters killed my mommy and daddy. Monsters are real. They were real and they were here. The grown ups promised they would keep us safe. They told us everything would be all right and help was on the way. They lied. Our little settlement was so far away it would take up to two weeks for the nearest outpost to reach us. The monsters were clever and patient. When there was only a few of them, they quietly picked off the families living in the habitat modules on the outskirts of the colony, the ones whose disappearance wouldn't be noticed right away. As their numbers increased, the monsters began to hunt in packs. It wasn't long before there was enough of them and they didn't need to hide anymore. The monsters were coming. They were coming for each and every last one of us. The Central Air Processing Station was just outside the colony's perimeter. It was the primary terraformer and control center for the other automated terraforming substations that were spread across the small planet's surface. The majority of the grown-ups spent most of their waking hours here, including my mommy. They were all doing their part to make this tiny world breathable, building better worlds like all the signs and videos say. The monsters crashed through the ceiling and tore through the floor grating, catching everyone by surprise. Only a week ago, there was 158 of us. After the attack on the processing station, We had lost 84 people. Those of us left gathered together for safety. We had to move quickly. We knew what the monsters did to you if they took you. We knew that for every one of us taken, their numbers would grow. We knew we didn't have much time. The monsters grew so fast. We learned that from my daddy. He was the first. They thought I couldn't hear. They thought I wouldn't know but I saw it all. When my daddy started screaming in pain, they took him to see the doctor. I followed them. The grown-ups may have ruled the corridors and hallways, but the kids owned the vents and shafts. That was our playground. That was where we would play games like Monster Maze, and I was the best. The other kids were jealous because I could fit into places the others couldn't, They also couldn't memorize the turns and corners like me. I could go anywhere in the complex and never be seen, not once. Finding my way to where they had taken my daddy was a breeze. I didn't have to rely on my memory of the winding and turning tunnels of the ventilation system to find the correct room. The screams echoed loud and clear. I followed the sounds to the grilled screen that would allow me to peer into the medical compartment. I made myself look, but in the end, I closed my eyes to the horror. The screams hurt my ears. He was in pain. A deep snap of bone startled everyone in the room, and my daddy grew quiet and still. Suddenly, I could hear his body thrash and convulse violently. The medical personnel tried to hold him down, but the convulsions were too strong. People gasped and screamed at the sound of a loud crunch and snaps followed by what sounded like a bucket of water spilling to the ground and spraying the walls. My daddy's screams were no more than wet gurgles by now, and then I heard it. A loud and piercing screech came from something in the room, something that was angry, evil, and alien. It hissed loudly and scurried violently in the opposite direction, knocking over tools and equipment as it made its escape. The last of us gathered in the safest place left the Primary Operations Center. My daddy once told me it was the very first building in the colony. The original settlers had lived in here back when they couldn't breathe the air, and the Operations Center's thick walls and many pressurized doors protected them from the freezing temperatures and poisonous atmosphere. The adults put the kids in the center of the complex on the top level. They said the medical section was the safest place for us. We listened as the grown-ups did everything possible to block off entryways, weld shut each blast door, and close off every service tunnel. All access points were barricaded, and all the main entry gates were sealed shut. When all was said and done, there was nothing left to do but wait in the silence and fear the approach of nighttime, because everyone knows that the monsters mostly come at night, mostly. The planetoid rotates once every 57 hours. That makes for a very long night. Here, when the darkness falls, it feels like it will never end. The monsters didn't come the first night or the second night, but they were there. Their large bodies pressed and slid against the outer bulkheads. Powerful talons scraped against steel and drooling jaws extended and clenched. A piercing shriek would call out and echo in the distance now and then. The monster's cries would startle us, causing screams of fright and tears from most of the children. We continued to wait. It started on the third day with a metallic THUNK, THUNK, THUNK from the north gate. It echoed throughout the corridors. Anything not bolted down rattled and shook. I could see relief wash over some of the adults' faces. The waiting was finally over. The beating at the massive door, three levels down, grew louder in intensity. The children were gathered together and hurriedly rushed into one of the unused isolation medical bays only used for storage. I didn't like this room. Even though it housed many rows of containers and equipment, there were no vents or shafts in here. There was no way to escape. We watched from the monitoring station that had been set up within the medical bay. The adults began readying themselves. Most had small handguns and charges used for geological excavation. There were even a few crude flamethrowers. The strikes to the massive door became relentless. The pounding grew louder from massive blows now coming from the west gate. The monsters were slamming into the steel door so hard and so fast I could swear I felt the floor vibrate. They screamed with such anger from behind the barriers that blocked their way. The sounds of pounds and bangs became deafening. Claws and talons were now beating at the east gate. The echoes of metal being hit with massive, inhuman force now come at us from all directions when impacts fell against the main south gate. The bending and tearing of metal were heard throughout the complex and shrieks of victory roared out from alien lungs. We watched the blurry, dark shapes fill the monitor screens. Screams and hisses echoed from the lower levels as they tore down every barrier or obstacle. They filled the hallways, scurrying on the ceiling, walls, and floors. They were coming for us. The monsters fell on the people defending our last and only defense like a wall of black water. The grown-ups opened fired tossed their explosives and sprayed fire from flamethrowers. Smoke filled the room, making it hard to see. Powerful arms shot out from the ceiling and long fingers grabbed at anyone within their reach. The monsters poured into the cramped space, slamming into the people. Screams of terror and breaking of bone could be heard over the speakers. Images of blood and flesh filled our eyes from the small video monitors. Despite the wounds and injuries being inflicted, it was painfully obvious that none of the adults had been killed. Every last one of them was alive when they were dragged away into the darkness. It was over quickly. Soon, every last grown up in operations was gone. Dangling legs lifted into the air vents disappeared. The monsters gathered around those who struggled or were capable of fending them off. They were cornered and maimed by teeth and claws. Hands or feet were torn and severed from their body. Obviously, it was easier to manage and carry off their prey if it was crippled. Screams for help and pleas for death slowly faded into the distance. The remaining grown-ups sealed the hatchway to the main access door for our section and stood between us and the approaching nightmares They peeled away the hatch as if it were tinfoil, and were at the viewports and observation windows that lined the medical bay, hitting and scratching at the dura glass. They shattered it in no time and began swarming into the medical bay. Gunshots rung loud and screams from adults and children came from all directions. Monsters were leaping through the air, pouncing on any victim within their sight. They crawled on the walls and ceiling, plucking running children off their feet by their hair or even by their entire head from large, six-fingered claws. I cowered under an overturned medical bed when I locked eyes with a boy who couldn't have been more than seven. His arms were locked in a death grip around a support beam. Two monsters pounced on him and began pulling and jerking him violently. Somehow he maintained his grip around the metal beam and would not let go. I screamed in horror when they broke his arms and pried him off of that beam. His face had no expression or emotion. His limp arms trailed loosely behind him when they carried him away. He never screamed, not once. A woman flew across the room, smashing into a large fume hood to the right and rear of the large room. Her broken body lay over the destroyed workstation. The impact had toppled over the instrument and dislodged its upper panel, revealing a narrow ventilation duct within the wall. In a flash, I remembered the school day trip last month to see the scientists. It was the same type of instrument, the one used for dangerous chemicals. It was a duraglass enclosure with two access openings for the hands. They would stick their hands through the access points and pour their chemicals from the inside without breathing the fumes. The scientists said the fumes were then removed from the complex by the exhaust fans. I got to my feet and dove for the tiny opening. Three monsters, hunched on all fours, charged from the destroyed viewport. I entered the duct only to discover it immediately went from ground level to a vent that went straight up the wall. I pressed my body as far as I could to avoid the claws that were reaching in for me. It pushed itself relentlessly into the small opening, wedging itself further into the duct. The slick coat of slime glistened on the claws that were inching closer. The tips of its nails were nicking my clothes. I could feel the pull of the fabric grow firmer each time before the threads would break. I had one chance. I stood, and placed one hand on each side of the vent, hopped off the ground and pressed my feet against the walls to hold me up. I shimmied up the shaft bit by bit. Carefully but as quick as I could manage, I had made it more than halfway up the duct's distance when the scraping and beating of claws filled my ears from below. When I lifted myself into the junction, I twisted myself into the opening and briefly my eyes fell on the monster beneath me. I had never seen one this close. Its arm was extended and wedged under its massive head. The elongated head was cocked at an abnormal angle to face me. Transparent lips were quivering and curled over long and shiny fangs. Thick, clear drool poured out of its open mouth. It didn't even struggle anymore. It just looked at me. It had no eyes, but it still looked at me. A low and deep hiss began to build from within its chest until it was a piercing shriek. It was speaking to me. It, it was trying to tell me something. It was screaming. It hated me. I turned from the shrieks of rage and quickly made my way into the ventilation system. It wasn't long before I knew exactly where I was. I disappeared into the network of ducts, shafts, and pipes, the maze I knew so well. I have been all by myself for two weeks now. This tiny subcompartment, cradled in an entanglement of pipe and support strut beams of the environmental control system has become my home. The ventilation fan spins above me. The monsters keep their distance from its blades. The metal beams and large pipes keep me far out of reach from any monster's claws. I only leave my haven to scavenge for food. I avoid the main conduits in the ventilation system and stick to the smaller secondary shafts where the monster cannot fit. The monsters rule the corridors and hallways, but I own the vents and shafts. That is my playground. That was where I used to play games like Monster Maze, and I was the best. The monsters are angry because I can fit into places they can't. I have every turn and corner memorized. I can go anywhere in this complex and never be seen, not once. The monsters can't see me. Monsters. My mommy used to tell me there were no monsters. No real monsters. But there are. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Saying Goodbye by Jason R. Davis, narrated by Darren Marler. Truck driving is a lonely profession. It's hard on both the driver and the families that love them. One of the hardest moments in the driver's life is after being on the road for weeks, they return home for a couple days before leaving again. They leave and it is then that they must say their goodbyes. For this driver, he must say his final goodbye. Hear a sample of Saying Goodbye on the audiobook's page at WeirdDarkness.com. teacher strode across the front of the room, looking out at her class. And so, with the invention of Concordance V, true peace finally enveloped the world, she said with a serene smile. For 100 years, we have lived without conflict. The dream of world peace that so many strove for before is ours. A young man in the front row frowned and raised a hand. Can you truly define peace as the absence of conflict? He asked. If people are not allowed to disagree, they are not at peace. They live in constant fear. She cocked her head, eyes narrowing. And so you disagree with me then? The young man nodded automatically. Yes, he said. And Then his eyes widened. I mean, no, I... The veins in his throat seemed to bulge and twist as his hands grasped at his neck. He sputtered for a few moments and then fell on his desk. The teacher smiled gratefully at the class monitor as he removed the body from the chair. Version 5 is ten times faster than version 4, leaving no time for argument, which is truly key, she continued. There was a meaty thump outside the door, but no one paid it any heed. The janitors would have everything cleaned up before the bell rang, and thus peace reigned over the classroom. Keep listening, there's more weird darkness to come. People often ask me how I get everything done with as busy as I am. Two podcasts, working full-time for a radio station, running my voiceover business, narrating YouTube channels other than my own, being a Chicago actor. I do love being busy, but none of this would be possible if not for a couple of things. One, getting a good night's sleep, and two, having energy and focus during my waking hours. The latter one I accomplished with something I discovered a few months ago called Dawn to Dusk, which you can find at BrickHouseWeird.com. I take two Dawn to Dusk capsules right after lunch and suddenly I have energy and focus for the rest of the day. And with Dawn to Dusk, I don't get that afternoon crash I used to get with coffee and energy drinks. I'm not exaggerating when I say it has made a life-changing difference for me. I was so impressed with the product, I actually pursued them to be sponsors of my podcast. You can try Dawn to Dusk for yourself by visiting BrickHouseWeird.com. That's BrickHouseWeird.com. If you use the promo code WEIRD, you can also get 10% off anything you buy on their website. Give it a try, dawn to dusk, at BrickHouseWeird.com. I went to a small fair in Steubenville, Ohio, The main street into town has an underpass that goes underneath train tracks. There are a number of stores located in the underpass. The fair was located directly beside the underpass. We had walked about a half mile to the fair and were returning to our cars. It was about 11 pm. When we reached the underpass heading away from town, my friend John asked me and his girlfriend to wait for him while he went up the hill to the tracks to relieve himself. The other people in our party had kept on walking and were almost out of sight. As John's girlfriend and I waited on the sidewalk for him, we heard him actually scream. He came running down the hill, still screaming, and ran past the both of us. We were wondering what was wrong with him. I saw his girlfriend look down at the sidewalk. She then ran to catch up with him. I was standing there by myself wondering what the hell was going on when I saw it. It looked like a person's shadow, a silhouette of a head and shoulders but stopped at what would be the chest. It wasn't my shadow because it was totally detached from me and its head was near my feet. At first I thought it was another person's shadow and I looked down the sidewalk. There wasn't anybody there. By this time I was well into the tunnel of the underpass. The shadow remained as strong as ever. Also, two cars came down the street and their headlights passed across it, but it still remained. Even though it was summer, the closer the shadow came, the colder it got. The shadow traveled across the ground and came toward me. As soon as it reached my feet, it disappeared. I then ran to catch up with John and his girlfriend. I asked him what it was we just saw. He said he didn't know but when he was up next to the tracks he heard a rock overturn, and this thing came out from under it and chased him down the hill. I talked about this to a friend of mine. She said it was probably the spirit of someone who had been hit by a train and that's why the shadow was cut across the chest. Both my friend John and his girlfriend are in denial about what he saw, but I believe I came in contact with a shadow person. It started in 1986 when we moved to Texas. Rather than flying, my husband thought it would be nice to drive since I had never seen that part of the country. My husband had made this trip several times to see family in Gainesville. He always went the same route when he visited, but this time he decided to try something new. It was apparently a more scenic way to get to our destination. We were just on the Texan border when my husband realized that we were running low on gas, and we had not seen a gas station for some time. The road we were traveling was deserted, with not even a house in sight. I remember that there was a deep curve in the road, and that both sides of the road were surrounded by trees that formed a canopy over the road. I remember that it offered a slight reprieve from the heat. As we got into the full curve, the road suddenly straightened out, and the canopy of trees was gone. At the end of the curve was a very small and old-fashioned gas station with two of the oldest-looking gas pumps I had ever seen. I remember seeing bear hides hanging on a wooden fence. As my husband stepped out of the car, a young kid who looked as though he was about 11 appeared from nowhere. He was dirty, barefooted, and wearing overalls with one clip missing and hanging down in front. As my husband talked to the boy, I decided to go into the store and get something cold to drink but what I found there I will never forget. There were two cases of Coca-Cola sitting on the floor in front of the counter. Nothing unusual about that, except the bottles were very old, covered with at least a half inch of dust and cobwebs. The counter had a very old cash register, the kind that you pulled a handle to run it or add totals. It too was covered with dust. The more interesting thing was a really big cookie jar that sat on the counter with cookies inside. The jar was like the rest, covered with dust and cobwebs and no evidence of any disturbance. The store was extremely dark and musty-smelling, and as my eyes adjusted to the darkness I noticed that hundreds of what appeared to be animal hides were hanging everywhere. That's when I decided it was time to get out of that place. When I got back outside, my husband had finished pumping gas and was engaged in conversation with the boy. It was at this time that I noticed something else about the boy. All of his teeth that I could see were filed to sharp points like a carnivore's. The short time that I stood there, I noticed that the boy kept looking at my husband's stomach and smiling. He was trying to convince my husband to go fishing with him. My husband asked him where he lived, and he pointed to a cliff but he saw no houses. I told my husband we needed to go, and the boy kept begging my husband to go fishing. I got in the car and waited about two seconds before yelling at my husband. He finally told the boy he'd better go before he got in trouble with me. As we drove away, neither of us spoke for several minutes. Then we turned and looked at each other and let out a sigh of relief as if we had just escaped with our lives. We drove about 20 minutes down the road and stopped at a cafe. As we sat down at the table, we noticed that the placemat was one of those paper mats that show a little map of the area. We tried to find the gas station on the map, but failed. We decided to ask the waitress about the little gas station. We were totally shocked at her reply. She said there wasn't a gas station in that direction for at least two hours, and she had lived in the area all of her life. Even the name did not sound familiar to her. She told us the heat had probably gotten to us and we should remember to drink plenty of water. This episode of Weird Darkness is brought to you by the audiobook Inside the Mirrors by Jason R. Davis. Set in the town of Standard, that small, Midwestern town where nothing ever happens. Quiet, peaceful, and tucked away among the cornfields and away from the dangers of the outside world. Unfortunately, there is nothing normal about Standard. There's been an evil that was awakened, and now the residents are slowly going crazy. Men, for no reason, are coming home and murdering their families, and dark forms are appearing in people's mirrors. The evil is spreading, and now it is up to ex-Chicago cop Roboletto to find it. Time is running out, and the neighbors are becoming quiet, dark shadows as they watch him. He doesn't have long before it will start to get into his mind, and then he himself will be making that deadly trip home. Inside the Mirrors, available now on the audiobooks page at WeirdDarkness.com. Many years ago, I was hitchhiking with my best friend at the time through northern France and Belgium. We were traveling light, with just a small tent and sleeping bags and some stuff in backpacks. As often happens when hitchhiking, sometimes lifts were plentiful and other times non-existent, meaning that you had to trudge along the road until late into the night to reach your planned destination. Sometimes, you simply didn't make it at all and had to find a place to camp in a field by the side of the road. One evening, that was entirely the case. Despite it having been a nice, sunny day, we had no luck obtaining a ride, and by about 7 p.m. it was becoming obvious that we wouldn't make it to the campsite as we had planned. To add to our problems, the sunny day had given way to cloud, fog, and drizzle that dampened our spirits and made for a gloomy atmosphere. As a foggy darkness closed in, it got to the point that we could barely see a few feet in any direction. Around 10pm we simply gave up and pushed through the bushes that lined the side of the road into what we believed to be a farmer's field on the other side. We quickly put up the tent and, tired, we soon fell asleep after a couple of beers and a snack. My friend awoke first the next morning. He peeked out of the zippered tent door and hastily pulled his head back in. He looked at me in dismay. What's wrong? I asked, a bit concerned. His face was pale, and he couldn't or didn't want to say anything. Instead, he motioned for me to take a look. I peeked through the front door of the small tent, expecting an angry farmer, a bull, or something that would explain the look on my friend's face row upon row upon row of small, white tombstones for as far as the eye could see. We had camped in a World War I cemetery. It's just a good thing we hadn't known that. About 15 years ago, when my grandson was three years old, he, my daughter, and I were looking for my father's grave marker in the cemetery. The grave was just a marker without a headstone. My grandson ran over to one side of the graveyard and said, this is it, as he was brushing grass and dirt away from the marker. It was not my father's marker, but that of a person who had died in the late 1800s. As my grandson was pointing at the area, he said, Those people died, got their head broke. Later, I received a letter telling me that a close friend had died. Our little grandson came over and put his hand on my leg. Grammy, she died. I said yes, but did not think he knew what that meant. Then he said, she died in her car. Even though he was very small and had never met her, indeed, she passed before he was born in a car wreck. So is it possible for children to have visions of the past, or is this a second sight? Do you have a dark tale to tell? Fact or fiction, you can share your story at WeirdDarkness.com and I might use it in a future episode. Find links to this episode's stories in the show notes. I'm your creator and host, Darren Marlar. Thanks for joining me in the archives of Weird Darkness.